Welcome to Sparking Wholeness, where we talk all things related to nutrition for mind, body, and soul. I'm your host, Erin Carey. I'm a survivor of bipolar disorder and a self-proclaimed nutrition nerd who loves asking why. As a certified integrative nutrition health coach, my goal is to help people find balance, and I want to help you find ways to spark wholeness in your life. For more information, check out sparkingwholeness.com or on the Instagram handle, Sparking Wholeness. And now, get ready for today's awesome show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Sparking Wholeness. This is Erin Carey, and today I am bringing in one of our listener favorites again because I know she has so much insight and wisdom into child behavior. This is Dr. Sandy Gluckman, who I'm sitting with today, and I'm so excited about. She's a learning behavior and mood specialist author, educator, international speaker. She has consulted with and trained thousands of parents and teachers in different parts of the world. You can listen to her earlier episode on the Sparking Wholeness podcast, episode four, I believe it is, to talk about child resiliency. It's just an amazing episode. And I had so many friends and listeners write in and talk about how it was just life-changing for them. And so I'm really excited to see her again. Dr. Sandy Gluckman, thank you for being on. And thank you, Erin, for giving me the opportunity. Yeah, we are in unusual circumstances right now. While we are recording, we have just crossed about a month into a shelter in place for this whole coronavirus outbreak. And I know that... um, All children in our state are not able to go back to school now. We just found out today until maybe next fall. And it's a time of uncertainty for a lot of children. It's a time of uncertainty for a lot of parents. And so today I specifically uh, really wanted to talk about the sensitive child because, well, this is this is a topic that's close to me because I feel like I was a sensitive child. Sensitive children become sensitive adults. And I just want to pick your brain, Dr. Sandy, about what makes up a sensitive child, how we can help our sensitive child in these circumstances. And let's just get started. So I'd love to know why are some children more sensitive by nature and others are not? Yes, a lot of people ask me that. Um, It's an interesting answer that I'm going to give you and one that may be a surprise to a lot of listeners. And that is that um, sensitive children actually are children who in the womb as a fetus experienced some stress. Mm. So the stress would have been coming from something that's happening to mom during Mm -hmm. the pregnancy it could be a myriad of things you know um, from the the big things like losing a loved one or um, going through a relationship problem or even smaller things or mom is not healthy and well and and so there are millions of reasons for why mom could be stressed during a pregnancy and what happens is that the um, stress hormones that mom is now um, pumping in her body are then sent through to the child through the amniotic fluid. And what happens is those stress hormones, in particular cortisol, begin flooding the little fetus's Mm. body and brain and nervous system. And these children are then um, born what we call as wired 
for stress. They already come into the world with um, a vulnerability to be very easily stressed. And because their nervous systems are so on edge, they, they arrive with a nervous system that's extremely sensitive. And that is what we refer to as a child who has a sensitive nature. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. So when you're talking about the nervous system, and is that maybe break that down for people who are just now hearing that and going, okay, what does that mean nervous system? And what is the response of the nervous system in a sensitive child? How, how is it different from others? Yes, well, you know, the nervous system just travels from, from our brains right through our bodies and is busy picking up information all the time from the outside. And in the case of the, of the, um, of the sensitive child, it's these um, children seem to have like antennae, additional antennae that are constantly um, searching their environment and asking the question of, am I safe? Am I safe? Does this feel good to me? Does this feel good to me? Whereas a, a child who doesn't have such a sensitive nervous system is, is more apt to go with the flow and not constantly looking around for something that they feel may not be comfortable or safe for them. So the, the children then who have um, a very sensitive nature are um, very intuitive, they highly perceptive, they're very in tune to energies, with energies around them. They are picking up what's going on around them all the time. And in many cases, this can feel pretty overwhelming because as a child, you, you don't really know excuse me, you don't really know what do I do with all this information that's coming at me, which doesn't feel safe or nice, and I don't know what to do with it. So sensitive children are sometimes overwhelmed by their own sensitivity, their own perceptiveness. And as I said, they're picking up the energetic vibrations of the people around them. So you can imagine then that being a mommy or a daddy of a sensitive child is an additional responsibility in the sense that moms and dads need to know that this amazing sensitive perceptive intuitive little kid of mine is picking up my energetic vibrations and therefore I had better be sure that I'm showing up in a way that's making my child feel safe and calm. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, it makes me wonder because we know that children are, it's very difficult for them to um, understand abstract concepts. And it's very difficult for them to uh, think outside of their own egocentric, maybe perception of the world. And so what are some characteristics? How would we know? What are some behaviors maybe that a child is more sensitive than others? Is it through, you know, um, tantrums is it through what what are some of those things that we can look for in our in our own children to see that yes so um i'm going to answer in two ways to begin with and um, some of the personality characteristics and then i'm going to talk about some of the behavioral characteristics so if we deal with the personality characteristics very often sensitive natured children and by the way like you, I'm one of them. <laughs> I'm still a sensitive-natured child and will forever be. Um, 
But um, sensitive noted children uh, tend to be people pleasers. Mm -hmm. They're constantly looking for um, uh, validation and and recognition. They they really need a lot of recognition. They tend to be self doubters. They they're mm -hmm. not always very confident about their own uh, abilities. Um, they put other people's needs first all the time. And, and of course, everybody loves to have their needs put first. But for the uh, sensitive child, this doesn't always work out that well because others don't put the sensitive child's need first. And um, also things like find it very difficult to set boundaries Mm. Or to be able to say, no, this doesn't feel good for me. On the behavioral side, you started to mention the right things. We're going to see sensitive children doing a whole range of possible things. Well, I mean, not one child's doing a whole range. I mean, children show different range of behaviors mm -hmm. when they're sensitive. So you get the child who, <clears throat> when the child is feeling um, sensitive about an issue or uncomfortable or unsafe or has come to the conclusion that something going on in the room doesn't feel good to them, um, they will resort to what we call fight behaviours, which is a stress-related behaviour. So with fight, F-I-G-H-T, and I always spell that because my accent mm -hmm. is a little weird and then people go, what did she say? <laughs> uh, so it's fight. So with fight behaviors, these are the kids who are actually having temper tantrums and angry meltdowns. Mm -hmm. Then you get the sensitive child who is in flight. And these are the kids who um, are also having meltdowns, but they're more um, crying, meltdowns, sadness, um, fear, clinging, anxiety. And then you get those children who go into the freeze stress kind of mode of survival. And then it's just too difficult for them even to um, engage functionally with the world. They withdraw so deeply that they become shut down. Hmm. So the thing is that often those behaviors, you know, the fight, the flight, the freeze, are seen by moms and dads and teachers and even healthcare providers as the problem, mm. as a disorder, as a condition. And that really makes me mad <laughs> because it's not the truth. The truth is that these things are really caused by the underlying root cause of this child having an incredibly sensitive nature, mm -hmm. which in turn means that they are um, very vulnerable to stress. Mm -hmm. They are um, going to interpret a lot of things in their relationships as not comfortable for them. And that is going to increase their anxiety and so you can see it's, it's a really um, self-fulfilling loop. It just goes round and round. I, I'm sensitive, so I'm picking up vibes and energies. I'm interpreting it in a very sensitive kind of way. Mm. It makes me feel inadequate, or I believe I'm inadequate. And then I get anxious, and then my sensitivity rises, and it just goes on around and around all the time. So... The thing that I get most concerned about, Erin, is the 
the way in which um, <clears throat> parents, with all the love in the world, absolutely, I totally understand. And my parents did that with me too. Um, and that is the way in which parents often uh, attempt to deal with a sensitive child mm-hmm. um, in, in order to make the child more emotionally resilient. Mm-hmm. And very often it's um, the wrong way to deal with a child. Yeah, and what is that? What is the wrong way to deal with with a child that is behaving? I mean, because I know it would be real easy for a parent to just put up a behavior chart, or you know, just stop that right now and snap out of it. Or you know, I'm assuming those are not the correct ways. What are some other wrong responses to a child who's sensitive? Yes, and uh, I love that question. So there are layers and layers of answers. Let me just make it as simple as I can. First of all, the the thing that parents do wrong, well, again, please note, I'm not being judgmental, I'm saying, with all the best intentions in the world. But they are looking at the outward behavior, the meltdowns, Mm -hmm. um, and um, the, uh, the, the anger, or the complete withdrawal, and the sadness and the depression, they're looking at healing those symptoms. Um, and they may or may not even connect the dots between my child is having this meltdown right now, crying, looking so sad and lost. Um, and it's because she's a truly sensitive natured child and she's interpreting something that's going on in her environment in a way that's increasing her anxiety. So I'm not sure people make connect those dots. So if you're, if you're a mom and dad and listening to me, um, I'm saying don't focus on the meltdowns. Don't focus on the outward behavior that you're seeing. Focus on the fact that Oh my gosh, my beloved child, this wonderful sensitive child of mine has got a beautiful sensitive nature, but right now it's giving her a lot of anxiety. Mm. So let's, let's just focus on how do we heal the underlying root cause, which is the anxiety and the lack of belief in myself. Mm. Because the lack of belief in myself comes from the fact that the child interpreting the world in such a sensitive way and coming to the conclusion that I'm not enough. I'm not good enough. Hmm. And that's where I would, I would ask moms and dads to put their attention is how do we strengthen the child from the inside out to believe that they are truly so enough. Yeah, and you'd you'd be amazed that when when you you discover how do how you actually can increase the child's emotional resilience from the inside, which we can talk about in in a while if we have time. Um, what happens is that the sensitive the sensitive reactions to the world um, slow down. The child will forever be sensitive, as you said. You are. I am, and I'm just a good few years older than you. <laughs> uh, and I will, I will forever be sensitive. Mm-hmm. But um, I think you've heard me often say that sensitivity can be a burden or it can be a gift. 
I, I really like that. Yeah, that that it's a gift. And how can we get our children to see it that way? You know, is there a way that we can reframe it for them so that they can see that it's a gift? Well, I think that without a doubt, we can do that. It's how we do that. That's mm-hmm. important. Because I think a lot of moms and dads try to do that. They try to say what's special about you because you're so caring and you're so compassionate and you're just the most wonderful friend and mm-hmm. um, you know all that kind of conversation but children don't believe it so it's a conversation that may make them feel good for five minutes but they cannot hold on to it so we have to really um in a sense, stop talking about it and start changing the way their brain thinks about it. So yeah. I talk about creating a new neural pathway. Mm, and we that. do that, yes, and we do that by um, having conversations, just um, not necessarily lectures or um, serious conversations, but whenever we can, highlighting to the child all the positive characteristics that are unique to that child. Just, you know, throwing it into a conversation casually saying, you know, that's why you are so special because you love the way you just helped your sister. You just saw that she was struggling with her homework and you went and you helped her. That's what makes you so special. Or you go, you are something very amazing. Because you just realized that mommy was feeling a little tired and you just came to help me without me even asking you. That's what makes you special. So every time you have that kind of casual conversation with them, and I'm emphasizing casual because if we get too serious about it, the children switch off. Mm, and they don't believe that's a good point. Mm-hmm. So every time we have this kind of casual conversation, we are dropping a piece of information into a new neural pathway, mm-hmm. not the old pathway which says I'm not good enough, but a new neural pathway. And the more we do it, the more that the stronger that pathway gets, um, and the more it is filled with instances where you have pointed out to them what behaviors of, 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 of their sensitivity make them so special, um, eventually that neural pathway actually gets stronger than the older one, mm. the I'm not enough one. And the brain does something truly phenomenal when that new neural pathway with this new information that you've constantly thrown in there and watered and nurtured and given them more examples, try to make the examples as they occur in life, so they can see, oh, this behavior of mine makes me special. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the more that we do that and the other pathway gets weaker, the brain actually prunes the weaker pathway off. Yeah, that's amazing. I know. Isn't it incredible? Every three to four months, the brain scans itself huh. and it looks for pathways that are that are getting weaker, just like if you go outside into the garden and you look at a tree and you see a branch that's getting a little brown and not looking too healthy you prune it and the brain does the same thing Mm. and so with the brain pruning off the I'm not good enough and it's being left with a new neural pathway of actually this makes me special 
now the child begins to realize that this is a gift. It's, it's not a burden. I can use it as a gift. That's really good. And, you know, it's something we've talked about before, not on the podcast, but um, you and I both have, have discussed the age of labels and how we are so quick to label children. And I think um, even for me, being labeled with a mental illness at a young age was traumatizing to an extent. And it felt like there was, you know, just forever this scarlet letter. And this is the label that I'm under. This is how it's always going to be. And can't change anything. So how do we navigate, you know, what you're saying about neural pathways and these beliefs of not being enough in a world where we are so quick to label what probably many sensitive children are, are dealing with, whether it's anxiety or, you know, we have the label oppositional defiance disorder, you know, there are all these new labels. So I'd love to get some of your thoughts on that and how we can you know, help our children, whether they have a label, whether they are about to be labeled, whether they, or whatever, you know, like how, how can we do that? Mm. And, and you asking a question that you know is so very close to my heart, <laughs> but first I want to say, I feel so sad for that little Erin <laughs> who was given that horrible label and had to fight her way to um, lose it. And yeah. Congratulations, really. Thank you. It's amazing that you did that because mm -hmm. a lot of children actually grow into the label, not out of the label. Yeah. And they become the label. And they become the label because mom and dad treat them as the label, the teacher treats them as the label, the doctor treats them as the label and doesn't see the person behind mm -hmm. the label. So anyone who knows my work knows I am so against the diagnostic labels and I understand that we need them for accommodations at the schools um, but I do teach uh, parents how to what I call lose the label use it and then lose it mm. um, so how do your question was how do we navigate a world when we're having such labels um, first of all I would say unless you need the label because you really need uh, some accommodations at school and legally that label is required. I would highly recommend that you do everything you can not to get your, your child um, labeled diagnostically. Because let's face it, let's think about it logically. What does the label tell us? It is not useful. It's, you know, we know what we're, symptoms we're dealing with mm -hmm. if you're bipolar you knew what you were dealing with <laughs> you knew when you were up you knew when you were down if you're a, a, a defiant kid you we, we know what we're dealing with this mm -hmm. child is impulsive can't control his emotions mm -hmm. easily triggered so we know what we're dealing with therefore we know what it is we have to heal why do we have to package it up in a label and then hang it around the child's neck? I, mm -hmm. I don't, I really don't see that it is useful. If you could say to me, Dr. Sandy, we need that label. It is so useful to us in our treatment plan. Then I'm going to go, oh my gosh, absolutely. We need the label, but <laughs> it's not useful in any treatment plan because we know what we were trying to heal. We know exactly what those symptoms are. Um, so first of all, if you can avoid the label, I would say you do. Secondly, if we cannot avoid the label and or you already have one, and I'm not attempting to make anybody feel guilty here, please believe me, I, I know how this all happens. Um, 
So if you already have a label or you need to get one, then get it. And then what I always say is moms and dads, forget it. Get it mm-hmm. and forget it. Never, ever bring that label up in your sentences, in your communication, mm. not between mom and dad. You don't, moms and dads should not be talking to each other and saying things like, oh, David's had such a bad day with his ADHD today. It's been impossible. Mm. Because now we are connecting David and ADHD as an identity. So moms and dads should not talk about the child in label terms, even in their private conversations. Certainly not in the home at all. So siblings should not hear that label as as, um, uh, being described as their brother or their sister. Mm -hmm. And then I always say, please go to the teachers. And of course, with the greatest respect in the world because of the wonderful jobs they do, but at the same time, pretty firmly ask that they do not ever use that label in front of that child. Mm. Because then the child begins to feel, first of all, I'm not good enough. I'm not enough. There's something wrong with me. I'm not right. My brain's not working the same way. Mm. And we certainly don't want a neural pathway that the child goes into with that kind of information in it. So we ask the teacher never ever use the label in front of a child and we would prefer preferably ask you not even to think of the child in terms of the label because once we've got it we know what it is we're attempting to treat and heal and teach Mm. um it's hard you know when a doctor has actually said your child is a um, as ADHD or ODD or OCD or all of these horrible things. Um, Once you've heard that diagnosis, it's very hard to get it out of your head. Mm -hmm. And the worst thing is you get back in the car out of that appointment with a doctor and now you're actually unintentionally and unconsciously looking at the child through the label. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and kids pick up on that, right? Like, especially again, if we're dealing with that, that very sensitive child, they know that something is different. You know, they know that all of a sudden, oh, wait a minute, I'm different than everybody else. And and that's, that's a scary thing. That's probably also very, I would think isolating for the child, right? It is. It's horrible. And, uh, you know, the the funny thing or, you know, not funny, but uh, interesting thing is statistically speaking my research has shown that every single child well certainly I can only speak for those that I have seen who visited with me over the years in different parts of the world every single one of the children who have got any kind of label whether it's depression or it's um, um, social anxiety or uh, you know the, the list is long every single child of, who has a diagnostic label has a very sensitive nature Hmm. Wow. That does not surprise me. And that, like you said, that's, that's not funny. It's just like, Oh, wow. Like that, that makes so much sense with, with what I know of other people who struggle with the labels that we've been given or their children. And, and that makes a lot of sense. And I just wonder what is your concern right now currently with everything that's going on um, with this pandemic, with shelter in place, with the social distance and, 
how, what is your concern with how our children are going to perceive that um, or how maybe parents are handling that and children are picking up on that? I'd love to hear some of your thoughts there because I know we don't really know when this is all going to be over. You know, we don't know when schools will be able to be back open. So what are your thoughts there? Yes, thank you, Erin. Oh, my gosh, I've got a million thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> um, there, there, there are two kinds of thoughts. So uh, let me start with my worry thoughts mm-hmm. and then my um, happy thoughts. So my worry thoughts are that the levels of anxiety in the adults as well as the children are sky high. Mm, yes. Just going through the roof. Mm-hmm. And to be quite honest, um, anxiety, there, was a, there is an epidemic of anxiety before the virus. Mm-hmm. Children are scrap, grappling enormously with anxiety because of all the pressure. Uh, placed on them, all the stress, all the expectations, the ridiculous values that they're supposed to live by. Mm -hmm. So um, anxiety was high before, but now there is an even more serious reason for being anxious. Um, Based on the fact that we have proven, well, Dr. Daniel Siegel has proven, that um, whatever's going on inside of the parent will be going on inside of the child. Mm Mm-hmm. If we need to talk about it in scientific terms, it's called interpersonal neurobiology. Yeah. So um, if if mommy is anxious and um, the child is picking it up, the child's chemistry is changing to match mommy's chemistry, and so the child is anxious as well. So I have a great concern that um, anxiety <coughs> is 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 far too hard to be healthy and remember that that comes together with um, very high levels of stress hormones which are bad for the body and the brain in every kind of way and um, I have um, concern also that um, parents are often again always unintentionally um, talking about the worst case scenarios so we're teaching children to think worst case scenarios instead of to think about best case scenarios Mm, that's such a good thought and and you know um, when we what we think it it will change our chemistry yes and will change our behavior and so if we're thinking worst case scenarios we are just shooting our anxiety once again Mm. through the roof Um, but it also becomes a learned behavior Hmm. that in times of a challenge um, I think about the worst case scenarios I do it automatically versus um, I've learned how to think about the best case scenarios and then my that's my worry but my happy is that wow wish this would never have happened yet it is the most incredible opportunity for us to go inwards mm. until now let's be honest we have fallen into the trap of looking at the child's doing 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 how are you doing how are you doing socially how are you doing athletically how are you doing um um in terms of your parents how are you doing um your grades um you know it's all about the outside being very little attention paid to the inner being. Hmm. 
no time. You fetch the child from school and it's a mad rush. Get them to sports, extracurricular activities, then they've got to do their homework and then it's bath time and everyone just falls into bed. We've never had an even five-minute conversation about what's going on inside. Mm. Hey, what are you dreaming about? What are you thinking about? What are you grateful for? You know, just... um, it's a shame. It's a real, real shame that we have disconnected our children from their true, authentic inner beings. Yeah. And instead, we've replaced it with stress, pressure, anxiety, fear. Did you know, I read a statistic the other day that one in five children between the ages of three and 17 I'm not sure if it was 3 and 17 or 3 and 14, um, have a diagnosable mental illness. Hmm. Wow. Wow. Mental, emotional, behavioral issue, uh, illness. That is, that is ridiculous. Can you imagine what that means in terms of the millions of children yeah. walking around with that diagnosis we spoke about and also many of them being medicated? Hmm. Yeah, yeah, and long term, I don't know if we have the studies showing what what that's going to do long term um, right. on all of that, and so that that is very scary. Um, I love you mentioned something that I I think is cool because it's been showing up in, in my kids is, is gratitude. My three year old, and I don't know. It, it could just be his personality. But the other day I was giving him his vitamins and he said, thank you, mama, for helping me not be sick. And I was like, oh, well, well you're welcome. And then the other day I got him, I, it was like his lunch. It was just something he's like, thank you for this. Like he's very specific about naming it. But then I realized every night before we go to sleep, we have our times of gratitude, you know, thank you for, and I mean, he names all of his stuffed animals and he names all of his, you know, whatever he did during the day that he's thankful for. And it's become now it's becoming instantaneous throughout his day to be thankful for things. And it's been really cool to see that because I have seen more emotional outbursts than usual, which we can't go to our usual places. They're sad. You know, I'm sad. We can't go. We missed out on a really cool field trip at a planetarium. We were going to, you know, just little things like that, that we were looking forward to. So it's been, like you said, it's been a good opportunity to go inward and to check on, you know, try to re- rewire the brain through gratitude. And I see that showing up in my three-year-old in ways that maybe I haven't before. And so I thought that was really cool. What are some other tools? How can we, you know, you mentioned getting caught up in that worst case scenario, you know, that we do mm-hmm. as, as adults. And I know so many parents, I mean, I have so much sympathy for the moms and dads who are either single parents right now, or um, maybe they have lost their jobs, or maybe they took a giant pay cut or whatever it is, and how that kind of stress and how that's going to, how that is affecting their children. I, I just have so much sympathy and I, you know, I hate that. So how can we, you know, flip the switch and turn stress, worst case scenario thinking into these other more positive outlooks to rewire the neural pathways. What are your thoughts on that? Yes. So, um, Erin, you know that if we really, really want to do, to, to go inwards, one of the very, very best tools, and you, I, I know you're going to guess what I'm going to say, <laughs> is uh, meditation. 
there is absolutely no better tool, literally, of all the tools in the world for feeling calm, for um, feeling safe, for changing the nervous system, mm -hmm. for healing the immune system, um, for reaching that place of absolute calm that lives in the center of our being, mm -hmm. of connecting with the power of who we really are. There is no other single tool that even matches the healing ability of meditation. And the thing about meditation is there may be some negative stereotypes that it's unfortunate. Um, <clears throat> meditation and prayer live very well together. A lot of people say to me, oh, no, but I pray. I can't meditate. <laughs> yeah. I shouldn't meditate if I pray. And I'm saying, oh, my gosh, you know, if you meditate and pray, your prayers will really, really come true. Um, and the reason, it all comes back to my, my work being uh, based in neuroscience, uh, the reason that meditation is so powerful is that it changes our brain waves. Mm, I love that. Yeah, it goes. It takes us out of the beta, B-E-T-A, heavy waves that, that make us feel so glasses half full, uh, negative, frustrated, fearful. Those are actually brain waves. You know, emotions don't occur on their own. They are the result of a beta brain wave. Hmm. And, um, and, Meditation takes us into alpha, and alpha is just oh, the most amazing brainwave. It is, it is so calm, it is so tranquil, it is so serene, it is so joyful, it, it fills you with an uh, absolute appreciation of life and an immense gratitude for things. So when your three-year-old is talking about, thank you, mom, for <laughs> this and that, um, and he's feeling the gratitude, he's in an alpha wave, and his chemistry is the chemistry of health and wellness, even if it was for two minutes. Hmm. And the more often he does it, the more he has the chemistry of health and wellness. So meditation is one of my most favorite. And there's really beautiful meditations for children. You just have to Google, hmm. you know, the child's age and, and, and meditation for um, five-year-old, eight-year-old. And what are the, I've actually just put uh, some YouTube videos on about what to do during this challenging time and we are locked in. And um, if you just go to my YouTube channel, you will see some videos about this. But I do so strongly believe that if the whole family begins the day with meditation, even if it's five minutes, seven minutes, and then you just extend it a little longer to eight mm -hmm. to nine minutes, um, it, it makes a huge difference to the child's brainwaves. So that's one of the tools. Of course, breathing that. is a very important one. It seems so simple, but it's actually as profound. And um, anything that's, that is really changing your physiology, because if we're just trying to use positive thinking, it's now been shown positive thinking doesn't work. It doesn't change our brainwaves. So for a minute, I may say, I'm going to be happy all day today. And 20 minutes later, I am <laughs> so frustrated and irritated with something ridiculously small. Um, it doesn't work. Positive thinking doesn't work because it, we're in a beta wave. 
and it's like um, moving the chairs in the room ar around. You know, I'm going to be different. I'm going to change. I'm moving the furniture around, but I'm in the same room. I'm in the same brainwave. Yeah. yeah. And so we need something like breathing, which changes our brainwaves. Meditation changes our brainwaves. Yoga changes our brainwaves. Um, even some high impact kickboxing. Um, mm. Mm -hmm. It changes our brain waves. So for me, I love high impact. I do yoga as well, but I love high impact exercise. Um, anything where you truly feel that you've shifted out of the heaviness of the doing side and into the lightness of the being side. Mm. Yeah, I, lo I love that. And I'm glad you mentioned movement because I think that you know, my husband and I, since we, we can't go to the gym, we're doing a lot of workout videos from home and my kids are joining in because of course they're home too. And so it's funny, you know, watching them try to do what we're doing and, and joining along and, you know, sometimes they get in our way, but <laughs> for the most part, it's really cool that they're, they're able to see like, this is a, this is a behavior that, that we do because it makes us feel better. And that is one, you know, there are a few things that have really been getting me through this time. Um, movement is definitely a, a huge part of it and being outside and that, you know, we've had some really beautiful days and mm. sitting out in the sun. That's been so, so good for all of us. I mean, one day my kids and I, we were just outside for over two hours. We weren't really doing anything. We were just outside, you know? And so I think that that is a benefit to this time of slowdown. You know, like you said, there are there are some concerns there, are some, but, but going inward and, and finding some slowness, finding some stillness and being okay with the being outside of yeah. all of the doing that we normally are so wrapped up in. I think that that's really huge. Um, and, and I love that you mentioned meditation and, and breathing. And what would you say, you know, cause somebody might say, oh, well, I thought meditation was breathing. What, what would you say is the difference between meditation and deep breathing? Well, there is actually, uh, well, deep breathing and meditation are completely different. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, deep breathing, and it has to be, the, there, there are various um, ways of deep breathing. It, it, what it does is it actually um, um, connects with a, a nerve, the biggest nerve, cranial nerve, mm -hmm. the brain called the vagal nerve, V-A-G-A-L. And if you know how to breathe correctly, um, it will, the vagal nerve is that part of us that uh, calms us mm -hmm. and uh, makes us feel safe. So with the breathing, we can just tell our vagal nerve, the world is fine, we are safe, we are well, um, we are living in a blessed and wonderful time mm -hmm. um, so the breathing the deep breathing can do that <clears throat> there are um, breathing meditations where it's a little it's different in the sense that uh, in any meditation what we need is a point of focus mm. so that we can stop our our thinking brain from right you know, well not completely because otherwise we'd be brain dead but <laughs> but stop us from thinking that much and then just go into that alpha wave and then a thought pops up but we need a focus a point of focus to take us back into the alpha wave and then a thought pops up and we go back to that point of focus so the point of focus is, can be different it can be a sound like bells and gongs it can or a certain alpha music or it can be a voice or it can be a breathing 
So um, Deepak Chopra is kind of famous for his mm-hmm. breathing meditations. So all you do is every time you you uh, come out of alpha because you've had a beta thought about, oh, I wonder if so-and-so is safe or oh, I haven't got enough toilet paper or oh. every mm-hmm. time we think about those, we have we, we, we know we're going to go back to our breathing. It's our point of focus. So it takes us back into alpha, back into alpha. So, yes, I hope that answers your question. Yes, no, it definitely does. And I think that it's, it's so important to understand also that everything that you're sharing, it is backed by neuroscience, you know, and we are seeing so much of this that people used to think, oh, well, that's just woo woo, you know, like, that's just some kind of a weird, like, no, this is all like we are seeing in brain scans, right? We're seeing the way that brains are changing. And and I think that that's really important for people to understand and that it's it's we can start this with our kids now, you know, and this is something we can establish as 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 habit now, especially while we're in this time of slowdown. I think that that's helpful. Can you imagine what a gift we would be giving our children mm-hmm. if we gave them two or three tools that they can take forward with them into the new normal, whatever that's yeah. going to be, um, and for the rest of their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I love to tell the story of this little boy who um, he had the most horrible, horrible um, meltdowns, temper tantrums, meltdowns. Mm. It is clearly it was not his choice. He was being driven by the stress hormones inside mm-hmm. of him, but it was awful. You could see he was completely out of control. And then afterwards, if you asked him but what happened, he would say, I, I don't know, but I think my engine went on fire. No, <laughs> he was seven years old. I was so impressed with his interpretation because yeah. really, it's true. That's what happened. Mm-hmm. His brain and his nervous system were on fire, and he couldn't control it. It wasn't his choice. It was his the, the hormones going on inside of his the chemistry. So um, he talked about, but um, but my brain, uh, my um, engine goes on fire. So we taught him breathing particularly the breathing, you know, the breathing that calms the, the vagal nerve is a shorter breath in, holding, and then longer breath out. And um, we taught him the breathing, and he loved it. It obviously made him feel good. And then one day mom was fetching him from school, and she um, called me from the car, and she was laughing and crying at the same time. And she said, you know what, <clears throat> what Leo said to me today? As he got in the car, he said, Mommy, Mommy, my engine went on fire, but then I breathed and it calmed down. Oh. So he had a tool for life. Yes. Yes. And he didn't get uh, berated by the teacher for losing his mm-hmm. cool and having a temper tantrum. And he was in control. And obviously, it helped him to self regulate. And these exercises, these uh, tools that I've been talking about are actually all part of helping us to self-regulate instead of being controlled yes. from the inside by all negativity, we can actually self-regulate. And self-regulation is so important. And so many adults don't know how to do that. I mean, I can tell you by looking at my Facebook feed, how many adults don't know how to self-regulate, you know, (laughs) we're just so we are react, we are reacting so much off of those stress hormones. And so what can, you know, going back to 
all our sensitive children, you know, and, and all of these changes that are happening. Is there anything else that um, we can do to help our children become more emotionally resilient during this time and to help them self-regulate? Yes. And I, I did want to say something earlier. I'm just going to pop it in here. And that is that um, why I say to um, parents, don't talk to a child about being sensitive. Oh, because that's good. What we're doing is we're labeling them again. Wow. Yeah. You're a sensitive little boy, you know. You shouldn't be so sensitive. Mm-hmm. Um, your friend didn't mean to make you feel bad, um, you know, all of that stuff. So how do we um, teach them to be more resilient? Well, it's an inside-out job, not an outside-in job. Mm. Please don't believe for a single minute that you can talk your child into becoming more emotional, emotionally resilient. Mm. A lot of parents ask me, well, should I encourage him and force him to, to go and join a soccer team? <laughs> Maybe if I just force him and tell him, try it a few times, he'll see he really likes it. And I'm going, no, 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 no. Do not do that. It's not going to make the child emotionally resilient. It's going to make the child more stressed. Anxiety goes up. Sensitivity goes up. We're into that loop again. So I'm afraid I'm going to sound a little boring here, (laughs) a little repetitive. But there isn't another way to teach your child to be emotionally resilient other than, or I should say there isn't a better way, other than teaching them how to meditate. Mm. That's really good. Because Yeah, because remember, um, one last piece of science, when children are in sensitive mode and they're in fight, flight or freeze, depending on their reaction, they're really operating from the lower part of the brain. Mm-hmm. Fight, flight, freeze are in the lower, the lower brain, and uh, well, really the the, the yes, the, the lower part of the brain. And um, what happens is the blood flows out of the prefrontal cortex, which lives behind the forehead, mm-hmm. and it flows out to the bottom part of the brain to service the fight, the flight, or the freeze which means that the prefrontal cortex, which is responsible for self-regulation, for emotional resilience, Mm -hmm. for making good choices, for um, um, understanding social cues, for a whole long list of things, is offline. Mm. It's completely offline. So there is no point in asking a child who is in sensitive mode to become emotionally more resilient we have to switch that prefrontal cortex back online and we do that through meditation. That's so good. I'm so glad you said that because, you know, and, and I've talked about this before and previous podcasts, maybe even the one where I had you on before, but um, I, you know, I'm passionate about nutrition and movement, all of these things. But I think if we're not managing our stress and we're not managing our, the function of our prefrontal cortex, none of that is really going to help, you know, because 
so much of what we do and what we think and what we believe, it, it comes from that. And if, and you know this, if you're in fight or flight or freeze, it shuts down digestion. It shuts down even, I think, I read that reproductive organs do not function as well, you know, hormones. And I know so many friends myself, like there's so many, we all are going through hormonal changes constantly and managing our stress is a big part of regulating all of those things. And so I'm so glad that you gave us that reminder because it's not just for adults, it's for our children. We, we can teach them that too. And if we do that, then they've got a whole lifetime of strategies to help them through. They should do. And remember where we started this conversation, Erin, you asked me where does a sensitive child come from and, you know, why are some sensitive and some are not? And my answer was it comes from stress in the womb. Yep. Transferred from the mother to the child. So we can't get away from it. Um, 99% of all visitors, visits to the doctor are stress-related, wow. but they're not treated as stress-related. They treat it as a disease. Right. And, and I'm so glad that there's more awareness, you know, slowly, <laughs> slowly we're becoming more aware of, of these things. And, and I'm so glad that, that you're on the forefront of this educating people. And so where can people find you and get more information about you and reach out to you for more support? So um, my website is Dr. Dr. Sandy, S-A-N-D-Y, Glackman, G. L-U-C-K-M-A-N dot com. And on our website, if you look at the top under resources, or, or it's also on the homepage, you will see that I have some online programs. I do do um, one-on-one sessions <clears throat> online anywhere in the world. Um, of course, in better times, I work in the clinic as well. But I do have online programs, video programs that are, are, are truly, I think, um, leading edge. So they are, they take, I take the, the moms and dads by hand and I just teach them step by step, how do you get rid of your child's anxiety uh, or how do you increase your child's emotional resilience? So there's an anxiety program on there at the moment, Healing Anxiety. Um, a creating Emotional Resilience program is coming up in two weeks. And there are several other kinds of programs. There's also my book, which is called Parents Take Charge, Mm -hmm. How to Heal Learning Behavior and Mood Challenges Without Medication, Um, and a bunch of other resources. My YouTube, I I really am pretty proud of my YouTube um, um, videos in the sense that they are full of very important information, but always I... I do not leave them only with information. I provide the how-tos. Yes. So there's tools. And I'm, I'm basically about giving parents the tools to heal their children, which is why at the end of visiting with me, they don't need to bring the children because they have healed the children mm. by changing themselves using my tools. I love that. I, it's so cutting edge what you are doing. And yes, your YouTube videos, one of the things I love is that they're short, sweet, and very much to the point, you know, like you can learn so much from just a few minutes of watching your YouTube videos. So thank you so much for being on and, and having this conversation that I think is such an important conversation right now. So thank you so much for being available. Thank you, Erin. And please don't underestimate for a minute the work that you do. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you for the wonderful work you do.
Thanks for tuning in to Sparking Wholeness. For more on all things related to nutrition for mind, body, and soul, check out my website, sparkingwholeness.com. Don't forget to be kind and subscribe to this show wherever you listen to podcasts. And to be really kind, you can leave a nice review. I like those.